uh, join now in prayer together. Let's pray. Father, that song lays such an expectation on what the church is to be. An army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Father, how often we far fall far short, Lord, of that. And so we pray this evening that your word in the power of your spirit would change us and make us and mold us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for our ignorance that you would give us understanding. We pray, Lord, that in our discouragement, you would encourage us. And we pray, Lord, that where perhaps we are straying from the way, you would correct and rebuke us. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. May I ask you a personal question? I hope you don't mind. May I ask you a personal question? Now, when somebody says that to me, I'm usually thinking two things. One, I actually do mind if you ask me a personal question. Quickly followed by two, what question are you going to ask? Perhaps like me, you don't like personal questions. In fact, most of us don't like it when people get too personal. Take, for example, our conversation, maybe in the coffee lounge after the service. Uh, So often we're happy to discuss the weather or the tennis. Uh, But if the conversation turns deeper, if it becomes more direct, probably we will become uncomfortable with that. You know, one of the marks of this letter that we have been studying, 1 Timothy, is that it is a highly personal letter. True, it was written for the sake of a church. In terms of its purpose, it was written to promote the sound health of the church in Ephesus. But we must not overlook the fact, and it is a pretty obvious one, that the letter of 1 Timothy was written to an individual. It was a personal letter. Three times within the letter, this man is mentioned by name. The one who receives the letter is Timothy. And in this closing section, as we mount to the finale of the letter, the Apostle Paul gets particularly personal to Timothy. He addresses him extremely directly. And I want to suggest this evening that that what we find in these closing verses is a personal challenge. First of all, for Timothy... In verses 11 to 16. And then following that, in verses 17 to 19, Paul has another personal challenge. This time, 
for certain prosperous individuals in the church in Ephesus. This challenge doesn't come to Timothy. It comes through Timothy to these other people. So I hope this evening uh, you're ready for something a little bit personal because that really is what this study is. It's close to the nerve. So I hope you have your Bible open again at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's look at these remaining verses together. And we're going to begin with the personal challenge to Timothy. Or let me just cast it in a slightly different form. It is a personal challenge to the pastor. A personal challenge to the pastor. Look at verses 11 to 16. You'll see there that Paul is personally commissioning Timothy in these verses. Now, Paul doesn't use the word commissioning. He actually has his own word for it. He calls it a charge to Timothy. You see that in verse 13, I charge you. Now, perhaps you're scratching your head and thinking, I've heard that language before, a charge, a charge. Perhaps you have attended an induction service of a new pastor. At an induction service, that is typically the place where a pastor is given, we call it the charge. You can incidentally witness one of these on the 12th of September, right here at Charlotte Chapel, little advertisement. But a little word of warning. If you've never been to an induction you might find the sermon slightly strange. It is unlike any other kind of sermon because the induction sermon is preached usually primarily to the new pastor. You have one man who's being preached to and then 700 eavesdroppers. Now, you might think that's really bizarre, but actually that is precisely what's happening in these verses. Because the Apostle Paul is addressing this new pastor, Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus. He's giving Timothy his charge for the days and the weeks and months and years that lie ahead. And you and I are able to eavesdrop in on his conversation. And as we listen in to the beginning of Paul's solemn words to Timothy, the first thing Paul does is address the person to whom the charge is given. One of the things that's very striking about it is that Paul doesn't say, but you, Timothy. That's perhaps what you might expect to name the pastor by name, but Paul doesn't do that. You notice what Paul does instead in verse 11. He doesn't designate Timothy by name. Instead, he describes him by nature. But you, says Paul, man of God, man of God. I can just imagine Timothy, you know, this young pastor. He's not been on the road that many years. I can just imagine him almost looking over his shoulder as if to say, are you speaking to me? Aren't you talking about someone else, Paul? Man of God? And Timothy would have understood in fact, that this term in the Old Testament was reserved for some of God's most godly saints. 
man of God is a rare expression in the Bible. It is used only of a few men who were specially commissioned by God. Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Elijah. And now Paul says, Timothy, you are a man of God. Now I think what Paul is doing here is that he's building up a sense of expectation for what he's about to say. Because of course, if Timothy is a man of God, then he has to live as a godly man. Then he therefore has to fulfill the commission and the charge that God would have for him. You can't be a man of God and then say, God, I'm not listening to your commission. I'm going to go and do my own thing. No, Timothy, you are a man of God and you will do what God is charging you to do. Now, what is the charge? What is this uh, challenge that Paul puts personally to Timothy? Well, let's look at verses 11 and 12. They are the, the meat of it, the essence of it. I think the charge has three aspects that we can tease out. The, the first thing Paul says is, Timothy, be a runner. Be a runner. In verse 11, he employs two verbs that are both to do with running. Flee and pursue. Run from and run to. It's quite clear here that Paul isn't talking about physical running. Uh, he doesn't mean that Timothy is to go and run a marathon. Because uh, you see that what he says that he is to flee from is the corrupt character that has shown itself in the false teachers in Ephesus. He says here in verse 11, flee from all this. Now, what is the all this? Well, it is what Paul has been discussing in verses 1 through 10, just the, the prior section, if you look back. In those verses, Paul is talking about corrupt pastors and corrupt teachers in the city of Ephesus. And these false teachers were not only characterized by their dodgy teaching, they were also characterized by their dodgy behavior, by the way that they lived. Their big egos, Paul's mentioned that. Their contentious and divisive spirits and their love of money. They were in ministry for the green. But now Paul says, in contrast to that, Timothy, your behavior should be utterly different. You are not to associate yourself with that kind of behavior. You are to flee from it. You are to run a country mile from it. Now, it's not just in the negative, flee from this. Paul also says, and pursue a Christian character. He summarizes it with six virtues, which I don't think are meant to be exhaustive. This isn't all that Timothy is to become. But a summary of Christian character, Paul speaks of righteousness, which is our behavior with other Christians, godliness, our relation to God, our faith in God, and our love for God and people, which are the cardinal Christian virtues, faith and love. They come in the middle, the heart of this. And then Paul mentions endurance in the face of opposition and gentleness to restore those who would wander away. Paul says, Timothy, my first charge to you is a charge to run for holiness, to flee from corrupt character, and to pursue 
the godly character of Christ. Now, that is obviously an important call to any pastor. I mean, it stands to reason that the pastor of a church should at least be attempting to flee from immoral behavior and to pursue godliness. If a pastor of a church isn't doing that, you can't expect anyone else in the church to be doing that. Robert Murray McShane, he made some very famous statements about pastor's holiness. One of the things he said was, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. He didn't say their greatest need was his sermons. He said the greatest need was his personal holiness. He also said that a holy minister is a powerful weapon in the hands of God. And he was absolutely right. But what is a pursuit for pastors surely must also be a pursuit for the flock that they shepherd. We know from elsewhere in the New Testament that one of the things that you are called to as a believer in Christ is to holiness. You realize that? I do trust that you're not just called to be saved. You're called to be saints. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says that God chose us in order to be holy and blameless in his sight. It was one of the purposes for which we were saved in the first place. And so this question comes to you and it comes to me this evening. Am I pursuing amongst the goals of my life personal holiness? Is that a pursuit? Am I not just kind of walking in the direction of holiness? Am I running for it? Are you pursuing a career? Are you pursuing, I don't know just now, a marriage partner? Are you pursuing a nice family home? Nothing wrong with these things. But let me ask you this. Are you pursuing even more so holiness? What a challenge this is. Now there's another aspect to the church. Paul begins with things ethically, but then he moves on to things doctrinally. And he says, Timothy, not only be a runner, but also I'm charging you to be a fighter. It's the beginning of verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith, Paul says. Now, now what Paul says uh, here to Timothy is, Timothy, you're going to have to don your gloves if you're really going to do ministry for the Lord. You know, this is no place for weaklings. There is a place for contention and even for fighting in the Lord's service. Now, the fight that Paul is talking about, before we go out into Rose Street and label someone over the jaw, is a different to the usual kind of fighting. Because Paul says here that it is the good fight. That's Paul's way of saying that unlike most boxing matches that you have, this is a noble fight for a noble cause. And what is this fight? Well, Paul says it is the good fight of the faith. What does Paul mean by the, the fight of the faith? He could mean that Timothy is to fight for his own faith. That is that Timothy has to contend to trust in God more personally. Now, he might mean that here. I don't think he does mean that. He doesn't say to Timothy, fight for your faith. 
Notice that he uses the, what we call the definite article, the the word. He says, uh, fight the good fight of the faith. And the faith in Paul's letters is shorthand for talking about the gospel faith. The sound doctrine, the faithful deposit, uh, which is to be received and believed and guarded. And now Paul says, it sometimes has to be fought for. Sometimes there will be those from within the church, perhaps. We see that in the letter of Galatians, who would oppose the gospel. More often, it probably comes from outside the church. As we hear teaching on on the television or uh, through the internet or whatever it is. And Paul says that particularly Timothy as a pastor has to be willing to contend for the gospel has to be willing to stand, as it were, toe-to-toe with these people and say, that is not the gospel. At the beginning of this letter, in fact, the very first thing Paul said to Timothy was, Timothy, don't run from Ephesus. These false uh, teachers are all awash throughout the city. Your church is vulnerable, but Timothy, I don't want you to flee from the fight. I want you to fight for the gospel. And no doubt it will, at times, be a bloody and a bruising confrontation. I've never been in a boxing match, but I don't imagine from watching them pounding each other that it's nice or or that it's easy. But when the gospel is the prize, the fight must be fought. Some of the heroes of church history are, are such a great inspiration in this regard. Because, you know, there's not many people around today, men or women, who seem to have the real backbone and the fight for the gospel. But as you look throughout church history, you see many great men and women. One of my great heroes is a chap from the 4th century called Athanasius. Don't be put off by his name. Go Google him and find out about Athanasius. And all that he did in the 4th century to fight back against those who were changing the gospel. There were some guys uh, coming into the the churches, there were pastors even, who were preaching that Jesus wasn't God. And Athanasius immediately realized that if Jesus wasn't God, then the gospel was false, that his death wasn't sufficient. And you know, you read his story, there were five occasions where he was exiled. He went through all sorts of horrific stuff. And you know, they wrote in his his gravestone, Athanasius contramundum which means Athanasius against the world. There was a time when he practically was fighting the whole of the church for the sake of the gospel, and he won in the end. Paul says there's a time, Timothy, to be a fighter when the gospel is being compromised. Be a runner, he's already said, and then he completes the charge. He says, be a grasper. Be a grasper. Now, this is perhaps the most difficult phrase in verse 12. What does this mean? Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Clearly, Paul cannot mean here that Timothy is not a Christian. He cannot mean that Timothy doesn't possess eternal life in any sense. Indeed, Paul points back probably to Timothy's baptism. And he says, Timothy, Uh, there was an occasion when you made your confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
And at that time, Timothy, you received the call to eternal life. So Timothy had begun the experience of eternal life in knowing Jesus. But now Paul says to him, Timothy, I really want you to grasp hold of the benefits of eternal life. The Greek word here, translated take hold, is a word which was used of Jesus in the Gospels. When Peter, you remember, was walking across the water to meet Jesus, and he began to sink, the Gospels tell us that Jesus reached out and he took hold of Peter's hand. He grasped him. The word means to grasp violently. And Paul says, Timothy, I want you to violently, forcefully grasp the full experience of the blessings of life in Christ. See, you can have life in Christ, technically, yet not really in its fullness, experientially. There are many examples I could give, but let me just give you one example of not really experiencing the fullness of the life you have. Assurance in the Lord Jesus. Some of you this evening are in God's sight assured of eternal life, yet you do not feel assured of that. For whatever the reason that might be. And you need to understand that in that situation, you're not experiencing the full benefits of eternal life. Because one of the benefits is that you might know that you have assurance. If you read the letter of 1 John, that letter, the whole thing, is written to Christians who had eternal life, and yet they didn't know with certainty that they had it. Uh, You read the purpose statement in the letter. He says, I'm writing to those of you who have eternal life that you might know that you have it. And that's the essence of Paul's charge here. He says, if you're in that situation, Timothy, if there is something lacking in terms of your experience of the fullness of the Christian life, don't be content. Become 100% in terms of your experience of the Christian life. So this is the essence of Paul's charge to Timothy. First of all, he says, be a runner. Secondly, he says, be a fighter. And thirdly, he says, be a grasper. It must have come as an ominous charge to Timothy. I can imagine him sort of asking questions about it. I can imagine him almost trying to wheedle out a bit of what Paul was laying on him. Maybe he asked the question, how long? How long am I bound to this? How long am I going to have to carry on? It's such a full-on charge. And Paul answers in verse 14. Until the appearing of Jesus Christ. Like Paul himself, Timothy would have to fight the good fight and he would have to run the race right until the end. Either until Timothy dropped dead or Christ Jesus came down and appeared. Timothy must have been thinking, there must be a way out of this. Uh, Maybe it's only you, Paul, that realizes that this charge has been put on me. Because this is a personal letter, of course. Maybe no one will find out about this, and I can just wheedle out. Maybe the church won't find out, Paul, that you've given uh, this great and grand charge to me. But Paul says, that doesn't matter. And in verses 13 to 16, he says, uh, Timothy, there are two witnesses that are actually watching what's going on right now. Just as in, in a wedding, you have the two witnesses there. 
as you solemnize things. So Paul says here, there are two awesome witnesses in heaven, and they're witnessing the charge right now between me and you. In the sight of God, verse 13, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus. On the one hand, you have the creator of all living things. You have uh, God the Father. And then on the other hand, you have Christ Jesus. It's interesting what Paul adds about Christ. He doesn't say Christ the Son of God. He says something rather innocuous. He says, uh, Christ who made his confession before Pontius Pilate. But of course, Jesus, when he had stood before Pilate, he was asked that direct question, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus made his confession. He said, yes, this, it is as you say. And partly because of those words, Jesus was crucified. And Paul's saying here, you know, this Jesus who's witnessing this commission, he fulfilled his charge. He made the good confession even when the going was tough, even when the race was difficult, even when the fight was bloody. He made the confession, and he's watching to see, Timothy, whether you are going to fulfill your charge also. Christ is watching. The Father is watching. No pressure. And then it's as if Paul just gets really carried away with himself. He did this back in chapter 1 as well, where he just bursts forth into praise. And it is as Paul is gazing up into heaven, as the curtain of heaven is open. He just begins to, to worship and, and to honor this God in whose sight the charge has been given. And the attributes of deity begin to flow from the apostle's pen and tumble from his mouth. And he speaks of the sovereignty of God. He speaks of the, the kingship of God. He says he is the Lord of lords. He says, Timothy, he's immortal. He is altogether holy. He is so astonishing in his glory that no one can see him. No one has seen him. We think back to Moses in, in Exodus. Remember where he wanted to see God and he was hidden in the rock. Because you can't see God and not die. And therefore, this God in whose sight the charge is given is worthy of praise and worship. And Timothy, this awesome God, is watching to see how you will respond to my challenge. Well, it's quite a commission, isn't it? I mean, I'm going to get commissioned myself in, a, in about two months' time. Peter's coming over to Northern Ireland, and he's going to preach a little charge to me. Peter, it better not be anything like this. This is much, much too scary. You know, so you just imagine it. I'm giving you this charge today. These incredible things. And God the Father's watching. Christ Jesus is watching. That's what Paul says to Timothy. Now, as we continue on in the passage, we come to a second charge. That was Timothy's charge, the charge to the pastor. But secondly, we come to a, another group made up of individuals. And this, secondly, is a personal charge to the prosperous. A personal charge to the prosperous. Now, in Paul's day, as today, uh, there was a large gap between the rich and the poor. This was certainly seen in the church in Ephesus. In the church in Ephesus, there were really two predominant groups of people. On the one hand, there were masters. They were wealthy men. They were businessmen. They typically 
had their family-run business, and they would own slaves who would be, as it were, their labor, their employees. And so you had these masters on the one hand with lots of possessions, but then on the other hand, a significant portion of the congregation were the poor. They were slaves. About a third of the people who lived in this society, the Greco-Roman society, were slaves in this day. Some of them owned possessions, usually not very much. Some of them had virtually nothing. And it made, I'm sure, for an interesting dynamic in the church services. Because, of course, these slaves were Christians. These masters were Christians. And the the very rich and the very poor, they would gather together and they would worship together. They would pray together. They would hear God's word together. They would have chats after the service together. You can just imagine that some tensions were likely to arise between these two groups. Paul's already told us uh, earlier in this chapter that some of the poorest people in the church, the slaves, were starting to resent the richer members. Slaves were disrespecting their masters, and some of them were coveting money. By the way, you can be a very poor person and be a very covetous person. That's what was going on in in Ephesus. But then uh, Paul, in verses 17 to 19, he doesn't just get on the case of the poorer folks. He now gets on the case of the richer folks. And he turns his attention to the prosperous in the church. And don't you just love the way that he addresses them? Maybe you're here this evening and you, even in the credit crunch, are quite well off. Listen to how Paul would describe you, if that's you. He says, those who are rich in this present world. Paul didn't just call people rich, full stop. He says, you're rich in this present world. That is, for the duration of the present time and the near future, perhaps, and on the the platform, the stage of earth. But beyond this life, when we get into the heavenly side of reality, you may not be rich at all. And so he addresses these folks who who are rich in the present world. And he says to Timothy, Paul doesn't directly speak to them, He speaks personally to Timothy, and then he says, Timothy, I want you to go, and I want you to talk to these people. You know who they are. Go to them, probably privately, and I want you to command them a number of things, these very uber-wealthy people. Number one, command them not to be arrogant. Not to be arrogant. I guess one of the the great dangers, if if you've got a bit of money, is that you boast about it. Uh, You know, people who are wealthy often boast about what they have. They talk about their new car. They talk about the fancy holiday they've just gone on or the, the fancy watch that they have. They boast about what they have. They may even secretly think that because they have money, they must in some way be superior to people who don't have money. It's no necessary indication, of course, but that can be the thought. Next, he he is to command them not to hope in riches, but to hope in God. That's verse 17. And this must have been a staggering uh, thing for some of these folks to be commanded. Surely a Christian doesn't need to be commanded not to hope in riches, but to hope in God. Surely that would be the definition of a Christian, that you hope in God. 
But Paul says, there might be some folks in your church and they actually don't hope in God. They hope in wealth. That can happen even to quite godly people when they get a bit of uh, affluence or, or what they sometimes call affluenza. You know, it's like a disease. Uh, John, John Wesley, he ministered in the uh, 18th century. He was involved in a, in a great revival then. And the revival, a lot of it happened among very poor people. And it's interesting, he observed that as many of these people were genuinely converted, uh, as they got their lives back on track, as they got you know, proper jobs and, and a good work ethic and all the rest of it, that they actually began to get wealthier and wealthier. And some of them got really, really rich. And Wesley made, once made a comment, he said that as their spiritual lives seem to be on the increase, uh, sorry, as their, their cash is on the increase, so also their spiritual life seems to be on the decrease. How often that happens. It's not necessary to happen that way. But it's a temptation. If you don't have wealth, the danger is that you hope for it, you pang for it. And if you do have wealth, the danger is that you hope in it. You, you, you trust in it as your security. And yet this is such a silly thing. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. He says that wealth is so uncertain. It's as uncertain as the roll of the dice. In Jesus' day, uh, he once preached on wealth. And he spoke of some of the things that, that, that made it so uncertain. He talked about the fact that burglars could break in and steal it. He talked about moths that could get in and around it and ruin it. He talked about rust that could soon erode it. And maybe today, and we've just seen some of this very recently, a fire can quickly burn it and ruin it. And market crashes, I mean... Your money can fritter away in just a few hours in that way. John Stott writes, many people have gone to bed rich and woken up poor. So why would you put your hope in such an uncertain thing as wealth? You know, maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. Maybe you would even say, I don't really think I have a God that I believe in. But it may actually be that in a functional way, in a practical sense, money is your God. It's reflected in the fact that you work all the hours of the day, that you're so concerned about the next promotion, you're really concerned about money. And I want to say to you tonight, or Paul indeed would, that that is a silly thing to put your trust in. It is temporal and limited only for the duration of this life, and even within this life, it is so, so uncertain. Why worship a God who is as unstable as the stock market? Now, the remedy, of course, for all of us is to make God our treasure, is to make God our hope, as Paul puts it. But how do we know that we're hoping in God? Maybe you're here this evening and you say, well, I am a Christian. I'm not quite sure where the hope of my heart is resting in. Well, here's a, a way you can test it. Because Paul in verse 18 says to Timothy, also command them to do good, 
to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. I almost could be re-preaching this morning's sermon if you were here from 2 Corinthians 8. It's virtually the same as what Paul says there. If gold is not your God, then you'll have no problem with giving it away, says Paul. No qualms about showing compassion in a practical sense. Here's a little test. If an opportunity arises for you to show compassion financially, do you instinctively rise to meet that? Or are you slow? Are you sluggish? Do you maybe even give, but begrudgingly give, because it's the right thing to do? If the answer to that is yes, then prosperity may be corrupting your spirituality. If we truly belong to Christ, if we grasp the riches we have in him, then one of the effects will be we will turn from being closed-handed scrooges to become open-handed givers. You know, the wonderful thing is that when we come to Christ, he can make that happen within us. Let me tell you a, a little story. A number of years ago, a 14-year-old boy uh, spent a Saturday night uh, binge drinking with his friends. And the next morning, he, he dutifully went to confirmation classes. His uh, parents were putting him through this rigmarole. And he returned home afterwards. His father met him and told him that his mother had died. Uh, he went along to the funeral, but neither his mother's death nor the the confirmation classes had any effect on him. Three or four days before he was confirmed, he was guilty of some pretty gross immorality. And the day before he was confirmed, he, he went to confession, and he defrauded the clergyman uh, by only giving him a, a twelfth of what his father had given him to give to the minister. At 16, he was thrown in jail because he ran up bills at a couple of nice hotels and uh, skipped out without paying. His father paid the bills and then beat his son, but the beating still didn't deter him. He had a heart for pleasure, and he had money as his God. And he continued to cheat, particularly in relation to, to, to money and defrauding people. At the age of 20, he went with a friend to a, a home gathering where he saw some Christians for the, one of the first times. People who seemed to have something he didn't have. A genuine faith and hope in God. He didn't really get it the first time, but he returned a second time and he suddenly felt compelled to put his faith in this Jesus who died for his sins. He was converted. And, and as he began to grow in faith and obedience, and as he began to open this book and read passages like this, read passages like 2 Corinthians 8, he gradually began to, to change his ethic with regards to money. Rather than taking it from people, he started to give it away to a few people. He eventually began to catch the bug as the Holy Spirit was undoubtedly doing a work in his heart. And one day, he was reading the biography of another Christian who sailed this idea of founding an orphanage for the poorest of the poor. And this still young man determined from that point that he would start an orphanage. 
he determined that he would give away all of his earthly possessions and that he would not ask anybody for monetary support even for the sake of his ministry. He would live by faith in God alone who possesses, you know, the heavenly bank account. That man, some of you will already have guessed, was George Muller. George Muller. You know, what I love about that story is that people tend to know the, the end of it, that he founded all these orphanages, that he gave away all his money. What they don't realize is he was a Scrooge before he was a Christian who put his hope in wealth. And maybe you're here tonight and you are a Muller pre-conversion. Your riches are your God. But God can do a work in you. Maybe you're a Christian and you're kind of halfway along the road. The Holy Spirit can take you further and make you generous. Well, what a personal challenge this must have been to those in this church. And as one of the commentators pointed out, it would be interesting to to have sat in the church gathering. As perhaps Timothy himself took Paul's letter and read it out in the hearing of the poor and the rich. Maybe there were a few embarrassed faces on behalf of some of the wealthy folk. Maybe there were a few apologies after this service because of some of the arrogance and contempt that had been shown from the rich to the poor. Maybe there were some tears of repentance because people came to realize that they actually weren't worshiping Christ as much as they thought they were. Well, in conclusion, we've seen a personal challenge to Timothy, the pastor, and a personal challenge through Timothy to the prosperous in the church in Ephesus. But as as Paul concludes the letter, he also finishes with a personal word. A personal word to Timothy. Verse 20. Look at what he says, uh, tells him there. First of all, he says for Timothy to guard the gospel. It's been a big theme of this letter, hasn't it? That Timothy is not only to proclaim the gospel, he's to guard it and defend it, fight for it, and protect it. And that is a challenge for us as a church, and especially for a leadership of a church like this, that we guard the gospel that is preached. And then secondly, he also says there that Timothy is to avoid the deviation of the false teachers. Because Paul recognizes that even Timothy could wander off from the faith if he's not careful, if he gets in with the wrong corrupt crowd, if he sells out, he could become one of them. Finally, finally, notice so after the personal word, there is a corporate blessing. At the very end, this is just absolutely fascinating, Paul pans out and he gives us blessing in verse 21. It's typical in all of his letters, but it's striking here. He says, grace be with you. And what is important to to realize is that the you here is plural you. He's not saying grace be with you, Timothy, as an individual. No, for the first time in the whole of the letter, Paul directly addresses the church in Ephesus and he says, grace be with you all. Because he's aware that this letter written to Timothy is going to be read in their hearing. And he wants them to know that his heart in all that he's saying to Timothy, 
in all that Timothy will challenge them to do, and they might not like some of it, is for their sake. He wants this church to become a healthy church. He wants this church to be full of the gospel and full of the grace of God. It's a corporate blessing, but it's a personal challenge. And you know, when we think about the church and God making it into all that he wants it to be, it begins as God changes and challenges individuals. Maybe you have great dreams in your mind, if you're a Charlotte Chapel member, for this church and what it could be. And I'm sure God could do some amazing things here in the future. But we must recognize that for things to change corporately, the challenge has to come to each of us personally. What is the personal challenge that God is bringing to you this evening from this chapter and from the letter of 1 Timothy? Let's pray. Let's just take a moment just to think about that because it's just so easy to go away at the end of the service, forget about the sermon. Let's think about what point God has made to us tonight. Maybe today, as twice over, we have heard sermons about our money and our possessions. Father, we thank you for this letter of 1 Timothy. We thank you, Lord, for all we've learned. And Lord, there's something you're saying to each person here tonight. Lord, whether we're listening is another matter. We pray that you will give each of us ears to hear. Help us to respond, Lord. Help us to apply. Help us to be different and be changed. But Lord, we can't do it in our own strength. And so we need the help and the power of your Holy Spirit to make us the people and the church that we should be. Help us now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.